This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook, at Christy Alexander-Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram, at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. We've got another rockin' episode for you. Dana Spiota is here to talk about her National Book Award-nominated novel, Eat the Document. If your jam is 70s and 90s radical activism, political fugitives, think weather underground, lost and obscure albums, bootleg recordings, underground filmmaking, and a ton of classic rock, you're going to love this novel. Later, Lucas Hare, co-host of the Is It Rolling Bob? Talkin' Dylan podcast, will join me to share his thoughts about Bob Dylan's unreleased documentary called Eat the Document. But first, we welcome Dana Spiota to the show. Dana is the author of five novels, most recently Wayward, which was a New York Times Critics' Top Book of the Year. She has been a finalist for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. She was a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, the Rome Prize, the St. Francis College Literary Prize, and the John Updike Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She lives in central New York and teaches in the Syracuse University MFA program. Thanks for coming on the show, Dana. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, before we talk about Eat the Document and all the amazing musicians that pop up in that novel, let's play a set of five questions to find out if any of them are included in your personal record collection and musical memories. What's the first album or record you bought? Uh, when I was 10 years old, I bought a Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band at Tower nice. Records. Yeah, Tower Records for, I think, seven ninety nine. Yeah, great choice. That was one of my early records, too. What was your most memorable live music experience? Um, in, I saw um, The Clash at the Hollywood Palladium in 1982. And that oh, was, wow. That was pretty great. Yeah, when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else in there that you saw that you were really impressed with? Uh, yeah, those those years, which were, you know, that peak time. I saw R.E.M. at the Greek in 1981. I saw the repl replacements oh. in San Bernardino also in 1982. That was a great period. 
If you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band, who would it be? And what's one question you would ask? Uh, this is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess for me, the answer would probably be Paul McCartney because I've been obsessed with Paul McCartney since I was about eight. I love the Beatles for them and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105 and an old grandmother, I'll love them. And Paul McCartney, if you are listening, Adrian from Brooklyn loves you with all her heart. I love you, Paul, and please come to the window so I can just see you. I probably wouldn't be able to ask him a question. I would probably just, I would faint. Yeah, yeah. That would be me with Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> it, would, it would be ugly. Okay, so you're a Paul. I'm a John. I like Paul too, but... I, I kind of gravitate towards John. You can like them both. Yeah, yeah, you can. All right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, John's not available, so Paul is. So there you go. Well, this mm-hmm. is true. Yeah, unless we're going to do a seance, we, we're going to have to go with mm-hmm. Paul. What's on your playlist now? Okay, it's funny because I've been thinking about um, Eat the Document because I knew you were going to be, I was going to be on your podcast. And uh, so I was looking at some old music and I started listening to Um, This album called Diana and Marvin from 1973, which is, you know, when a lot of the book takes place, 72, 73. Yeah. And uh, this is an album. uh, It's Diana Ross and Marvin uh, Marvin Gaye. And it's a kind of duet album they did. Um, And I remember it very vividly from um, the mid 70s. And uh, this kind it's really um, their voices are so great together. And some of the lyrics mm-hmm. are kind of, some of the lyrics are a little corny, you know, um, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely like a great makeout album for sure. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I recommend it. People don't know about it that much, I don't think. like peak diana ross that kind of like mahogany error 70s diana ross which i was really into when i was you know again that 10 year old error okay so which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity see this is a hard question too um i you know dennis wilson is in eat the document in one scene yep and I think he could be a, a whole book, but it, I wouldn't write it, but I would read that book. And maybe the other person would be, um, it'd be I think Graham Parsons would be a good rock novel. Yes, I was going to mention to you later on when we talk about the music in the novel that I was, you did a, a Large Hearted Boy playlist. Yeah. And I'll talk, I'll talk more about that later, but... I love that you included Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers in that, even though they don't show up in the novel, because I love Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Well, there's one reference to Graham Parsons in the novel, uh, which is that oh, yeah, there's the right. lost Keith Richards Graham Parsons tape from mm-hmm. the you know, Exile on Main Street era. Yeah. Yeah. That, is, yeah. that is still lost. As far as I know, it doesn't really, it, it, it'll, it was never, never found. Okay. Yeah. I know Graham was there for part of those, that, that time when they were in exile and they were making that album, Yep. but yeah. Okay. So there is some lost recordings from that. People say that people say that. Gotcha. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Dana Spiota and make sure you stick around to hear Lucas Hare talk about the unreleased Bob Dylan documentary, eat the document back in a moment.
This is Dana Spiota, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back with Dana Spieta, whose novel, Eat the Document, is the focus of this episode. So to make sure everybody's on the proverbial same page out there in podcast land, tell us a little bit about the basic plot of Eat the Document. Um, Eat the Document, is a, it, it's, it begins in, the, um, in 1972, and a woman has gone underground after doing some, um, uh, she's an anti-war activist, she's done some act of violence you, that you don't find out about till later. And she's completely left her old life behind. And then we skip um, to the 90s where we meet uh, a character, Jason, who, um, I mean, I don't know how, I don't, it's okay if I spoil it. The book's almost 20 years old, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's up to you. Well, and and we sort of meet these characters in, um, in Seattle and, uh, and then eventually the past and the present converge in a way. Um, but we do, I think it's, yeah, I think there are some surprises that are nice, but basically, uh, you know, we, we see, um, this main character in her new life and, um, where she, where she is discovered. There's so much ground to cover in this novel that we just can't get to in in this one episode. So I'm going to focus on a few key areas and everybody listening, you've got to read this book because there's a lot more to ingest and appreciate, which is why it was a national book award finalist. So I guess I'm going to start with research and inspiration. Beginning writers are often given the advice, write what you know. But you said at the Colgate Writers Conference in 2012, don't write what you know. Start with what you don't know, what you don't understand. Pay attention to what compels you, what bothers you, and truly fascinates you, which I love because it's sort of what I tell my writing students too. So what is it about the elements of this story that compel and fascinate you? Well, I was, um, I was at, uh, I was in a doctor's office and I was reading People magazine and there was an article about Catherine Ann Power and she had turned herself in after living in Oregon uh, underground um, after doing something similar to this. She did a bank robbery, but it was similar to, uh, it was an, uh, you know, a left um, 
from the same era. And I, um, and I just thought, well, why she got away with it, right? She was living successfully underground. Why would you one day just turn yourself in? So that question was like, what, what was it like? I wasn't so interested in the act that she did, uh, although I wanted to understand it in the context that would make it seem like a moral thing to do. And then I wanted to understand what it would be like to change your identity and to live a new identity and for years and maybe and have a child and be really tethered uh, to to this present that's false and uh, wondering if you're going to get caught and then what would make it maybe it would be so hard to maintain that eventually you just turn yourself in. So I was really trying to figure out this woman and I didn't want her to be Catherine Ann Power and she isn't Catherine Ann Power. She's very different, but. Um, but I got that con that that the idea came from that question of why would she turn herself in after all those years, and uh, and I and I think I figured out from writing it why she did, or at least why my character did. So there was a lot of research because I I you know I was born in 1966, so I was a you know a little baby when a lot of the action of the book takes place, and um, and you have to be very careful writing about the recent past because people remember it right. Yes. And mm -hmm. so what I found is that um, I was in, I was living, I've moved upstate New York and there's a lot of, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in Ithaca in a lot of these kind of uh, sort of hippie enclaves where people were still kind of uh, living out, uh, you know, a, a kind of a back to the land life out here. And there was a lot of, I'd go to, you know, um, junk stores and I'd find a lot of, uh, you know, Laurel's Garden kind of books from that era. Uh, and I got like, I really wanted to get these primary documents from the era with the right font. Mm. I needed the right language. Um, you know, the, our bodies, ourselves, uh, old life magazines. Um, what I found less helpful were memoirs. I did read a lot of memoirs because there are a lot of really smart people who had similar backgrounds to this character. I read, you know, um, Bill Ayers and I'm in a lot of the, the weather underground. And I read, uh, uh, Peter Coyote, great memoir but uh, the trouble with the memoir is it's processed by the present and so you know you're kind of like making a story and you're using the language from whenever you write the memoir and i really wanted the raw material so i found some great kind of in the moment um kind of uh collections of of reminiscences from people who were in alternative communities in that time that kind of back to the land stuff which i was very interested in and then Raymond Mungo wrote some cool books, memoirs about that era too. Um, and I, I tried to read some books that were really, that had the language. I felt the language was really important. And then um, yes. as far as the rock and roll part of it, well, you know, the thing, the thing is, is that I, 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 I really like the Beach Boys, but I wasn't as obsessed with the Beach Boys as the character. There's a character, Jason, in the book who's 15, and he's very obsessed. I am a pretty obsessive person. So the write what you know part is that I, was a lot like Jason when I was in high school. I was really, music was everything to me and I collected records and I was a big, I was a big um, uh, music freak. And, and I ended up working in a record store. So in um, yeah. yeah, in Seattle at Cellophane Square. So that's, you know, cleverly disguised in the book as I forget what it's called in the book, but mm -hmm. it's barely disguised. And, um, and so I lived in a black house, like the house that Miranda lives in. In, oh my God. Okay. I was yeah. going to ask you about that because it, it, it reminds me so much of um, Disgraceland, the house in LA that was like the punk house in the late seventies and, and through the eighties. Yeah. I think there's houses like that everywhere. Right. And um, mm -hmm, so I did mm -hmm. move into that house um, 
and there was a bookstore that's a lot like the bookstore, not quite. I mean, everything is is a kind of hyper realism where you're kind of just bringing it up a little bit to a more ridiculous level. So the extremes right. of all the names of the group, you know, and for so so what I I did actually go back when I knew I was writing about Seattle, I went back to Seattle and I did actually go to this bookstore that's near that doesn't exist anymore that was near the Pike Place Market that was kind of like a radical bookstore and I shadowed somebody for a day. Um I think you just need to do enough research where you feel um comfortable and confident with what you're writing about. And a lot of times you're making stuff up and then filling it back in with your research. And then the other thing I did was, uh, yeah, so I just allowed my obsessiveness to go out of control on the Beach Boys. And so, um, and that was really fun because that never leaves you. You know, you're you're sort of like, you're done with the book and I'm probably done with like, and I, I, oh, and I watched so much stuff about the Vietnam War. um, And I watched the television history of the Vietnam War so I could see what people saw on TV at that time. And then I went to the Paley Center, which, which is now called the, I forget what it's called now. It's called the Media. I forget what it's called, but it's a, it's a it's a museum of media in New York City. I think it's actually called the Paley Center. I forget what it used to be called. And then um, and I watched a lot of shows, like uh, you know, at the beginning of the book where she's watching the talk show, and I wanted to see what commercials were on and what you know, the, wow. all the pop culture of that era that I wanted to make it seem you know real for me. If it felt real for me, I could make it real for other people. And, uh, and all of that was really fun and really immersive and quite, yeah, pretty, um, extensive, I would say probably more than I needed to do, but, but I said, you know, it was part of the, it's part of the fun for me. Now I'm interested in how you found out all the details of creating a new identity and going underground, because I now know all there Ah. is to know about how to disappear. If the going gets rough, I mean, I'm out of here. I've already got my new name picked out. I'm good. Yeah, that was fun. How how did you get to that point? Well, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's these little creepy books you can get about how to change your identity and and I had all of those, you know, and like the anarchist cookbook and all those things I had, I have all those. Yeah. And it's fun to kind of get the old books that exist because you have to make it, it has to work for 1972. It can't be now. Um, so I found there's, you know, there's, there was a, the whole earth catalog, which was this great kind of Stuart brand, um, amazing catalog, the internet on paper before the internet, which where like high, t- high tech and hippiness met, right? It was like the precursor. No, it's amazing. It's like the precursor to uh, Silicon Valley, right? So it was this technology, technology will set you free, information will set you free. And it was this catalog that had like how, how, you, how to make things, how to make a geodesic dome, how to make, you know, all these kind of practical tools for living. And it's, I have many of them. They're really wonderful. And you can get reprints of them or you can buy them on eBay. And, uh, and they're, they're really fun because they give you so much texture of the time, but also gives you, uh, ideas about, and I made up a lot. So for like all the, uh, names of the, um, the rebel, you know, the, um, the resisting groups and all the names of the companies and the, the drug names and things like that. So I would just take names of real things, you know, and I would just put like different suffixes on them and sort of think about like little weird ways of making, you know, new words that were similar to how a pharmaceutical company would make a new drug. Oh, it does sure. mix this Latinate word with this thing and you mix that. And, and I just have pages of that, pages of that. And that again, mm-hmm. was like, it was like, did I need to do all that? 
partially it was because um, I didn't feel like writing. So I would just, oh, I'll just come up with names today, you know? <laughs> yeah, I do that. And then for, for, and then I have a character who has three names in the book, right? So I had to, you know, yes. so names are really important in the book. The names of the groups, the names of, of uh, the characters, um, all of that is really important as, and Miranda talks that, about that a lot. She's the young female mm-hmm. actress. She talks about names and what they mean. Um, so a lot of it was about, was being interested in this kind of, how do you describe something if you want to resist, if you want to be, if you want to resist the mainstream of the culture, whether that's political or artistic, if you want to be sort of separate from this kind of commodified uh, capitalism, how do you do that? And one of the things is, you know, you sort of take control of the language. Okay. Well, that, that kind of feeds into the next thing. I, I want to talk about identity, mm-hmm. the question of identity mm-hmm. and who are you? And it's one of the central themes in the novel. Here's a quote from the first chapter. What do you discover when you remove all the variables? That you are the sum of your experiences and vital statistics? That you are you no matter what your name or whether people expect different things of you? I mean, the real question for me is how much can you remake yourself? Are you a name, a social security number, a body, or something more soulful than that, or a combination? What does identity mean to the characters, Mary and Bobby. They sort of have different strategies for reinventing themselves. So let's start with Mary. Now, we already know that she's modeled on Catherine Ann Power, but who else is this character? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, that was just like the inspiration, but she really isn't meant to be her. Um, and I didn't do any research on Catherine Ann Power. I just kind of wanted to let that go because... Um, okay. Uh, partially because that's her story and she's around and I didn't, you know... Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think the idea for, I, I wanted her to be a really, um, uh, I wanted her to be a person of good faith and I wanted to take her very seriously and her earnestness about being a good person. And I also wanted it to be very much that she is the decider of the action that she takes. I didn't want her to be, a lot of times I read these, these memoirs and people kind of blame like I fell in love and he led me astray, you know, and I didn't want that to be. I wanted there to be a love a story, but I wanted her to be, I, we need to do this. And I wanted her to own it. And I wanted it to be her decision. And I wanted her to ultimately regret her decision. So I knew what kind of person she would be. Um, so I think that is who she is. But I think we are very much shaped by our context. Obviously, we are. And and yes. And so I think it, she feels very lost without her context. And also the people that, um, you know, remind you of who you are or who you used to be. And there's something, I think it's this very American idea. Can you really reinvent yourself? It's like, you know, Jay Gatsby or something. Can you, yeah. uh, is it a matter of money or is it a matter of, uh, you know, can you really in, reinvent yourself? Um, and in a way you can, and in a way you can't. And I think it's um, uh, a, a kind of um, 
it's almost the American dream this this in, that you can forget the past. But part of forgetting the past is also, I mean, the past is also what makes you um, responsible. It's part part of what makes you human. You if you if you pretend the past doesn't exist, then you there's no accountability, right? So right, right. So I think she she can't leave behind what she's done. That is in her. That is who she is. But yeah, but I think in, in you know, does she have to be an activist anymore? The irony is that she can't be an activist anymore, right? So she becomes this kind of like, you know, um lonely uh kind of uh drunk um pot smoking housewife. Yeah, <laughs> pot smoking. You know, she teaches uh she teaches uh cooking and can't really be honest with her son. And uh yeah, and that's not the life that 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 she wanted to lead. And I think that's part a big reason why she turns herself in because I think it weighs on her that she has uh done this thing and that she hasn't um accepted it really. Yeah. Okay, so that that's interesting that you said that. That's why she turns herself in because I was going to say we don't really know if she turned herself in. It's never it's never really spelled out at the end of the book. Yeah, I mean, I think once she said, you know, once her son figures out who she is, um, she has to turn herself in because he's now he's now implicated in her undergroundness. Right. So I think it, it, she's she's very clearly um, the reason why I think she stayed underground so long is because of Jason, because she got pregnant. Yeah. Had, I mean, I think it like that's that's what interests me about fiction is when you have like a dilemma, that's a real dilemma. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, she can't. She should turn herself in, but she's now has a baby. So wouldn't that be bad to turn herself in at this point? Because she's got to raise this kid. But now she's raising this kid, living this lie. So it's one of these kind of very tight positions to put a character in that seemed really hard to solve, to know what the right thing yeah. is, right? Yeah. And you, you kind of get the feeling that it's almost a relief when, he, when her son finds out yeah. who she really is. Yeah, maybe on some level she she starts dropping hints and lets him figure it out, you know, that he's old enough. And, and uh, yeah, because she wants to be him to know who she is. And that's what that whole conversation where they have about Alger Hiss, which is really a conversation about her and pretending to talk about Alger Hiss. Yes. Um, where she's pretty much saying, you're a smart kid, you know, you know this. Yeah. So there's a, there's a high cost of living in secret for these characters let's talk about Bobby and how he yeah. approaches that. Cause it's different. Yeah. He basically, uh, Bobby is trying to disappear or be not disappear, but to be less present on the earth. He, he, um, thinks what they did was wrong. I don't know. I don't think that maybe, um, Mary is quite as he, I think didn't think it was a good idea from the beginning actually. Yeah. But he, um, he, uh, he thinks that that the wrong that the tactics are as important. He's very committed to his um, resistance, um, but he thinks that the tactics are as important as the outcome. And I think he sort of despairs that the outcome will will ever happen. So it's really all about the way you live your life. So for him, he has to live an honest life, and that means even as he lives underground, and that means being you know very much like a monk. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't participate in the culture that he despises. Yes. That's his integrity. So I guess it's a question of integrity for him. Like, how can I maintain it? And he's not trying to hide. So he knows one day they will find him and he's ready to go. Farewell, my friend. 
Talking about 1970s versus 1990s activists, how do you think Bobby and his alias is Nash by now views the young para activist groups who meet at the bookstore he runs in Seattle called Prairie Fire in the 1990s? Yeah, I mean he's he's uh, I think he admires them and he thinks that mm-hmm. what they're you know I think he admires the energy of them, um, but he's also has you know he's he's sort of frustrated by them as well. And he has, you know, because they keep stealing from the store. <laughs> and um, I think he, no, but I think he, he likes uh, young people because they're uh, idealistic and they're still willing to fight things. And, um, and I think he's, you know, he's very idealistic deep down. Um, so I think that's why he does it. That's why he works at the bookstore. And he hopes that, I'm, he hopes that he can sort of help them be, you know, do better protests. And, yeah and kind of conceive of the world in a way that they yeah. feel um, that they can do something. There are so many rabbit holes to go down when you read this novel. The title is one of them. Oh, yeah. So let's, t- let's talk about the title. It comes from a documentary about Bob Dylan's 1966 UK and Ireland tour with his backing band, The Hogs, later became the band. So tell me about that film and its significance to the novel, Eat the Document. Dylan made it, you know, um, and it was never released, uh, you know, officially. You can get it pretty easily on the Internet. Um, And it's quite cool. It's very, um, you know, it's got they're all really young and beautiful. And uh, and it's when Dylan went electric um, and he got, you know, yelled at. So it's a kind of interesting time. He's trying to change his identity. You know, mm-hmm. and Dylan's a great character for that idea of, um, you know, who, when you're thinking about notions of identity um, and also resistance and, um, and of course, from that time period. So, um, so Dylan seemed like a good, and then Eat the Document is just, I thought, a great title because it kind of sounds like Steal This Book. It has the, 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 <laughs> the it, that, that imperative sounds like the error, right? Yeah. And and then eat the document is, you know, you would, um, if you have a secret message, you would eat it afterwards, right? So you Right, right. So it's that kind of underground. So it's an underground movie and it's about a kind of change of, of identity for Dylan. And it's also, so it's fit in a lot of different ways. Okay. So Jason has a copy of the movie and he also obtains three of, of Bobby's underground films. Bobby was an right. underground filmmaker. Right. So that's the other way it ties into the book is that yeah. I have, Bobby's a filmmaker and his movies are lost. And actually, Bobby is a character in my um, fourth novel, Innocence and Others. He makes an appearance and his as a filmmaker in this. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've had if you want more Bobby, read Innocence and Others. All uh, right. No, well, he's a very small character. OK. <laughs> Underground or lost films are really important in the novel. So we mm-hmm. have. Eat the document. We have Bobby's underground films, but we also have the Lost Love movie, and I love that because I freaking love love and <laughs> for a long time. So 
that was quite a treat reading about that because that's totally fictionalized. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about that movie a little bit. Yeah. So Bobby makes this movie um, and uh, with love and and uh, and uh, Mary is in the movie. And that's Mm -hmm. how Jason figures out his mother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just discovers her in the movie. Fun fact about you. You're originally from New Jersey, but your parents met at Hofstra University while playing Stanley and Stella in a production of A Streetcar Ah, Named Desire. You really do your research. I'll say that. (laughs) And that play that they were in was directed by fellow student Francis Ford Coppola, who's one of my all-time favorite directors. That blew my mind when I read that. And in 1979, when you were 13, your father began running Coppola's Zotrope Studios. So what, what was that like? Did you get to know Coppola? Oh, yes. He's, he's, uh, he was very, you know, their family was very close to our family and, and mm. uh, Coppola was great. And I, I actually was a, when I was 16, I worked on, uh, I got to work on um, Rumblefish as a summer job. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was. That's yeah, crazy. I actually have a credit on it. I'm a student observer. I'm a student observer. That's my credit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go back and watch yeah. that again. I've seen that so many so times. He was very but... generous with that, and he was a very good mentor, uh, artistic mentor. Mm-hmm. And he's still, we're still in touch. He's still a, a friend. I'm so excited he's making a new, another movie. And um, yeah, I think he's amazing. Um, oh, that's he's wonderful. such an amazing creative force. The way he mm-hmm. think, you know, the, the and his and and the way he thinks about America is very interesting and, and a big influence on me, I would say. Yeah, Susan Burton wrote the following about you in her 2016 New York Times article: "The Quietly Subversive Fictions of Dana Spirito." In Spirito's work, connections with movies and music are profound. She writes not only about art itself, but about the experience of it how you really love a song after you've heard it over and over, how your body feels almost desperate for the next part. I read a lot of rock novels in the last year, and few of them integrate music into their plots as well as eat the document. So let's talk about the role music plays in the story. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to write about the experience of um, listening, because I think novels are uh, the novels I'm interested in writing are about consciousness and so much of, um, so, so much of my life is spent, um, watching movies and listening to music. And that's an experience of the mind. And I really wanted to write about that experience of the mind. Like, what does it feel like when you're listening to a song that you've heard a million times? And, you know, he kind of talks about how his, um, Jason talks about his friend Gage is really obsessed with and and the kind of culture that comes around listening and fandom where Gage is really obsessed with um Roxy music and uh and he just wants to play stuff for Jason and Jason can't stop thinking about the Beach Boys and he tries to imagine a time when he's not doesn't love the Beach Boys the way he does now and it's almost like growing up or it's a whole experience right so for me growing up with that relationship to music it, and movies I do really you know that feeling that you get particularly when you're young but I think I still feel that way where if you want to really somebody to really know you that you've got to they've got to understand the music that you love and they've got to and you make a uh, make a mixtape for them or now it's a, now it's a playlist yes. you know and and you and, right. and you annotate it and you explain why it's great and you're you, you they've got to see this film and and those feel those communal experiences where and then I the other thing about music um, like that I think that becomes interesting is and film. Is that you know you change, but the 
the the art object is there, right? The artifact is there. Yeah. So you'll go back to the Beach Boys and you're a different person, but they're still the Beach Boys. Like, you know, um, smile, a smile is going to take going to be smile and you're going to have change and your relationship to that object changes. And then there's some things you don't ever want to go back to because you, you have a sense that you probably wouldn't like them the way you did. And they become a part of your memory of your life, right? A way of understanding yourself. So I think when you love something, and Jason says this in the book, you know, that it isn't just, at first he thinks maybe this is a series of superficial uh, infatuations that replaces some real meaning in my life, right? But then he reconsiders and he thinks, no, and, and you know, I'm paraphrasing him, um, but he says that, uh, no, maybe it really is, um, you know, what you find beautiful at this moment in your life it is your life. I mean, that's, that says something about who you are. So you talk about this idea of identity. And sometimes I think identity is expressed in your relationship to art, uh, what you love, why you love it, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to give that quote. I don't, I don't have to paraphrase it. He thinks, and this is a quote, it is beautiful to be enraptured, to be enthralled by something, anything. It isn't random. It speaks to you for a reason. You are discovering things about yourself and the world, even if it is just what it is you find beautiful right now, this second. And I love that because it's spot on. Obsessions aren't rooted in logic and reason. They're rooted in passion, emotion. They become part of who you are, your DNA. So if somebody disses your passion, it's like dissing a part of you. And Gage basically rolls his eyes at yes. Dennis Wilkes and the solo work that Jason <laughs> yes, shares yes. with him. And that's really, you know, I can relate to that. It's like, you don't have to explain your passions. They're just part of who you are. And, and to denigrate them is really shitty yes and i i was just going to say about that too it made me this is a sidebar but i was just thinking that um yeah i mean in a way it's a rock book because it has a lot of rock and roll in it but there's really very few musicians the only musicians in the book are arthur lee makes a very brief appearance as you said in the the lost love movie right and and um and the rest of love and uh we get dennis wilson not being a musician just kind of being a guy in a bar and those are just two tiny little snippets, but it really, it's about, it's really about loving music and listening to music and having it, uh, you know, as a way of understanding your life. Yeah. Right. And well, you also mentioned Alexander Spence. Yeah. And yes. as a, as a lost artist, he just kind of disappeared. Yeah. Wasn't he schizophrenic? Yeah. And or, okay. or is just one of those great albums that when I discovered, you're just like, I don't, this is amazing. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is an amazing record and you think what's the story you know he was in like this pop group and no one would think that he would come up with this and then he does and then he goes yeah you know it has this kind of romantic appeal but it's a beautiful record mysterious record So a lot of that was, um, it's like the Chris Bell record too, the, the solo album from the, he was in Big Star and uh, 
he died young, um, but he made this great solo record. You like that Chris Bell. So those one-offs really appeal to me, especially if they're kind of like in a more, in another band. And it's like a little sidebar, like Gene Clark was in the birds, but he made these records. You know, I love those kinds of little sidebars. Those are just so um, right. interesting. And you're just wondering, oh, is this who they really are? And they have that in them. And that that's so compelling. Just like the idea that, that Brian Wilson, you know, who was a big rock star, had smile in him. And nobody wanted it. And so it didn't get put out for years. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, I mentioned Large Hearted Boy earlier. So for people listening, you got to check out the book notes that Dana did for Eat the Document in Large Hearted Boy. And I'll put a, a, a link in the show notes. But Large Hearted Boy is a literature and music website. And, and like I was saying, I just I love that you mentioned Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers. <laughs> and then, then there's all this other stuff, you know, like with Alexander Spence. And he was first in Jefferson Airplane, then in Moby Grape. Moby Grape, yep. He was like a drummer drummer for Moby Grape, right? I think, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then Or is his only solo album. And you compare that album to Nick Drake and The Velvet Underground, both of which I love. So th- this just, I-, I love this book so much. I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you like Graham Parsons. I mean, Graham Parsons is another one, right? Where, you know, he has that weird, um, the, you know, the one-off with the birds, which is mm-hmm. great. And then you can now you can get the sweetheart of the rodeo with Graham's uh, vocals restored. Because, yeah, yeah. You know, and and uh, and I love that. You know, and the story is like, um, why were the vocals? You know, was it was uh, was it? Um, I mean, I guess it was a contractual thing or whatever. But um, yes, and that's a great little piece of history that no one sort of pays that much attention to. And you know, and 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 those, yeah, all the stuff that he did was just amazing. And I went through a big period where I was really obsessed with Graham Parsons. Yeah, you probably can tell. It's, it's in my, <laughs> he's mentioned Graham Parsons is mentioned in uh, Lightning Field, my first book, this book, and he's mentioned in uh, Stone Arabia too. Yeah. So um, yeah, I was like, maybe I can mention him in every book I write. And I thought, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. That would be weird. That would be weird. But uh, but yeah, no, I love I, I love Graham Parsons. And there's you know that that tantalizing glimpse of the Flying Burrito Brothers at um, in Gimme Shelter. You know where you see Graham oh, yeah, from yeah, yeah. behind, and you're like, Jesus, yeah. that footage must exist. Yeah, yeah. From the front. Where is it? Mick, Mick Jagger was very first. Somebody's got no, it. Mick Jagger threw that in the garbage because he's jealous of. I know. I know he was. He was. He was jealous of that relationship between Graham and Keith. I read a short story about Graham that got really? published. And, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called oh, Grievous Angel after one of his albums. Of course. I love that album. So going on, Jason and the bootleg of Smile, you know, he is so obsessed and and I mean, in a good way with listening to different versions of the same song over and over. And here's a quote, 10, 15, 20 takes that are nearly identical to each other. They have already worked out how it is going to go, exactly how it will sound. And the takes are all about executing it. And, And when I read that, I thought this is just like the fugitives. This is just like. Mary and Bobby, they're working out their new identities, different takes on the same person. Oh, good. The symmetry works on so many levels. And then you also describe listening to music in this way as a kind of meditation or a prayer. And I'm, I'm always down for comparing 
the love of music to sort of a spiritual experience. Yeah, I mean, I always thought that that, that was an apt description um, of the Beach Boys, you know, the teenage symphony to God thing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, um, yeah. and I do think that, that, you know, that when it's just their voices, it really does sound so celestial. And a lot of the music from that, uh, from the smile, from Pet Sounds and Smile and, and After um, is really uh, kind of um, spiritual sounding to me. And, and I do think that repetition uh, of music is a kind of meditate when you listen to things over and over again. Um, and, 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 and I am interested in this idea of repetition. There's in, in Innocence and Others, there's a lot about watching the same movie over and over again. Um, and I, and I, I know I haven't quite figured out why I'm so interested in it, but I am still very interested in, in repetition. Yeah. Because it's never really a repetition. You're, you're different. You've heard it now nine times instead of eight. So it's yes. not a real repetition because you're different, but I, I yeah. haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> and, ha- and how you hear it each time is different. Yeah. And that, that keeps it from being a repetition. Yeah. So this is interesting to me. Jason thinks the Beach Boys are subversive. <laughs> now, most of us don't think the Beach Boys are subversive. And, but he says the Beach Boys' extreme commercial popularity is precisely one of the reasons they are cult figures. Okay, so you're the author. You wrote that quote, but but that doesn't necessarily mean you agree with it. What are your thoughts about the Beach Boys as a subversive band? Well, I mean, I think uh, I don't think that that they were trying to be subversive, but yeah. I think Brian is just Brian Wilson uh, is such a um, you know iconoclast. I mean, he's a he's a, a special person, is a very gifted and damaged person, and so I think he um, you know was I do think. Uh, it is subversive to make art that's that's not what people want and that isn't what you've already done. And he wasn't, you know, he could make great pop songs. That's not what he wanted to do. So it is it does feel like a rebellious thing for me. I don't know if he could help it. I don't know if he could be any other way. I don't think it's intentional on his part. He's just trying to, you know, replicate the sounds in his head. But, yeah. um, but I, so I think in that way, there's something subversive. I certainly don't think like Mike Love is subversive. I think Mike Love has oh, no. <laughs> probably got a MAGA hat on right now. <laughs> he probably does. Ugh. <laughs> did you, did you see him at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No. Oh in, God. Yeah. With, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's so, yeah. Brian and your ego music. He's such a dick. I'm sorry. I know. I mean, he is a dick. He is. <laughs> totally. What do you say about the Rolling Stones? You'd never have the balls to get on oh stage with the Beach Boys or some shit like that. Oh, oh, it's crazy. Oh, he's so yeah, bad. that was. And then then Dylan came on afterward and said, "I'm glad he didn't mention me." Oh my God! I mean, what a <laughs> fool he is, you know. I know. Imagine being so bitter when instead he should just be so grateful that he got to go along on the ride of Brian right. Wilson, you know? Yeah. But what have you got going on now that you want to tell listeners about? Uh, uh, I'm working on an opera. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I'm just writing the libretto. My very talented friends are doing the real work, which is the, <laughs> the music and the artistic part of it. But it's on the Newtown Creek. It's called the Newtown Odyssey. It's like going to be uh, about a year from now. It's going to be performed on the Newtown Creek. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, 
a water opera. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then I'm working on a new novel, but I can't really talk about it yet. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah. Dana, thanks so much for coming on the show. Keep up with Dana Spiota at her website, danaspiota.com, where you can purchase a copy of her novel, Eat the Document, and all of her novels. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by Lucas Hare, who will talk about the unreleased Bob Dylan documentary, Eat the Document. Back in a moment. If you see her, say hello. She might be in Tangier. She left here last early spring. Is living there. This is Lucas Hare, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm excited to welcome Lucas Hare to the show. Lucas Hare is an actor and with Carrie Shell, co-host of the podcast, Is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan, another proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Welcome to Rock is Lit. Thanks, Christy. Good of you to have me. So the focus of this episode is Dana Spierda's rock novel, Eat the Document, which gets its title from the unreleased Bob Dylan documentary of the same title. So that was filmed during Dylan's 1966 UK tour. But let's back up a little bit. Just can you give me some context about Dylan in 1966? Where was his career at that point? Yeah, I mean, he had um, in the early part of 1966 recorded but not released Blonde on Blonde. Um, the previous July, he had gone electric in Newport and caused a few strong opinions. Uh, all hell broke and... loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all hell broke loose, except hell was about to get a little bit hotter. And <laughs> he embarked on a big tour in 1966. I mean, he was in the North of America in February. He played around sort of White Plains. Um, he went to Australia and then came to Europe. And, you know, we're talking about uh, Sweden, Denmark, France, but also the UK and Ireland. And he had been experimenting since Newport um, and particularly since Forest Hills, which I think was slightly after Newport that, that summer. He's been experimenting with a kind of two halved concert, you know, a sort of acoustic first half okay. and an electric second half. And he'd slowly built up a group of musicians, uh, you know, until he finally settled on what was ostensibly the Hawks, um, as in Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, who were later to become the band. By the time he got to Europe and to that part of the tour, Levon Helm had jumped ship. He allegedly had enough of the booing. Oh, of okay. which there was quite a lot. Um I mean, you know, it's strange because they booed at Newport, so they couldn't really complain that this was a new direction. It was just going in the same direction. 
but it was still deliberately provocative. And actually, by the time you get to the UK dates in May 1966, it's not just provocative. He's he's picking a fight. I mean, there are a couple of gigs where it's going fine. And then he goes, you know what? Fuck you. Um, you I'm going to make you hate this music. And you can hear it. You can hear it in, in Birmingham. Um, he in, in Ireland, for example, he gets his first very, very rough response in Dublin. And so the next night he's really ready for a fight in Belfast, but he doesn't get one. So you get this very edgy music and a very, <laughs> very welcoming audience. But by, by the time he gets to Birmingham, you can hear him just thinking, I'm going to make these people just hate this. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's a really interesting way to conduct a tour. And by the end of it, by the end of May, he is to all intents and purposes on the edge, you know, and, and various people have said he was close to death. I mean, Robbie Robertson claimed that he was very close to, to drowning in the bath after that final concert. What? Um, and I think from the point of, and now we can see his whole career holistically, yeah. you know, at least as far as it's, as it's gone. It's amazing that he didn't die. Mm. You know, look at the, the great rock and roll deaths of the people who, whose lives were snuffed out way too early. Hank Williams, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran and the rest. Dylan was headed that way. He was, to quote somebody, and I can't quite find the origin of this quote, uh, not just burning the candle at both ends, but using a blowtorch in the middle. Was it just the, the pressure mainly that was, that was driving him to that edge? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, he was, he's always someone who has resisted people trying to follow him. Okay. You know, and in, at the end of 1965, he held a press conference in San Francisco and people, you know, treated him like the Messiah. And he was a little bit shocked. And as you see in, um, in Martin Scorsese's film, No Direction Home, the following week, he was in Los Angeles and providing very, very cryptic answers to pretty ridiculous questions like how many folk singers do you think there are in the world um i'd say there's about 136 <laughs> and and that sets the that sets the tone for you know these journalists are asking ridiculous questions i'm going to treat them ridiculously and i mean there was a lot of pressure and he always he always seemed to be very fashionable but also to exist outside of that fashionable uh nucleus and in the middle of 1966 you know revolvers about to come out blonde on blondes about to come out Carnaby Street is the centre of the world culturally, and he's playing in the Albert Hall in Kensington, um, telling a, a, an audience of, of middle class swinging Londoners that something's happening, but they don't know what it is. And he's constantly trying to move forward and saying, you don't understand me. And if you try, I'll just change. <laughs> You know, and that's kind of where we are in 1966, I think. Okay, Let, let's go back to the tour for a second, because there's this very famous moment in one show, I think it was at Manchester, when mm. he's getting ready to play like a Rolling Stone, and somebody yeah. yells Judas, and he, right. he delivers this great retort, you know, I don't believe you, you're a liar. And then he, you can hear him on the, the recording, he turns around and he says, play it fucking loud. And then they just yeah. crank into like a Rolling Stone, and it's just a, this incredible moment. I don't believe you. You're a liar. 
And that's exactly the attitude I'm talking about. Someone mm-hmm. calls him Judas, and let's not forget—I mean, to call a, a, you know a Jewish man Judas is, uh-huh. is comes with a whole, you know, uh, bunch, a bunch of baggage that we might not think about on first listen. But anyway, and, and he, he, yeah, he responds with, "Well, fuck you! I'm, I, you, you, you hate me. I'm going to make you hate me more." But it's important to say as well that rock criticism has had that you know uh, that this was a, a major point for Dylan, and he was. I think to quote Paul Rothschild, who was the sound engineer at Newport, he said Dylan was shaken to his core. Look mm. at the fit- the footage in No Direction Home. He's smiling before he turns around and says, get fucking loud. Uh, two days later, uh, maybe three days later or something, he was in Glasgow and someone shouts Judas and they have a bit of a laugh about it. It's, it's just a joke to him, I think. Um, but on the stage... It is electric in in more than one sense, and it's it's angry and it's um, confrontational, and it's all the things that that punk was ten years away from inventing, frankly. But how did the film Eat the Document come about? What's the backstory with that? Well, D. A. Pennebaker had uh, filmed the tour that he'd made exactly a year earlier in May 1965, and in 1967, so it wasn't out yet, was going to release it as Don't Look Back. That's a fairly linear documentary in that it's about Bob Dylan, a musician, on the cusp of something, and it films him backstage and in concert and arguing with fans who want to categorise him. So presumably they thought, well, let's do this again. Let's do it in colour. Um, and we'll, we'll do that instead. And at some point, Dylan got bored of the linear documentary approach. Um, as with many things at that time, he got bored with things very, very quickly and changed direction very, very quickly. And he said something to the effect of, to, uh, to, to Pennebaker, something to the effect of, we've made your film, now I'm going to make mine. And so the, the chronology is a bit skewed here because it, the document um, was not to come out in any form until 1971. But it, let's, let's imagine 1967 when Dylan and the Hawks are killing time in Woodstock. Um, Don't Look Back is released that year and he has already decided that he doesn't want Eat the Document, as it wasn't called then, to be another Don't Look Back. So he's deciding to undermine his own format, I think. And I think, actually, he has form here. I mean, not only is it called Eat the Document, you know, it is an anti-documentary, but so is Ronaldo and Clara. So is Martin Scorsese's Rolling Thunder Review. They deliberately muck around with the form and say, well, I'm going to do it like this. And to watch the document, which was incidentally, I think, premiered, shown a couple of times um, in New York in February of 1971 and then throughout a bit in 1972, but never officially released. You know, to watch that is frustrating because if you, like me, think that this this Dylan tour is about as interesting as his career ever got, um, it's just phenomenally exciting. Then to be confronted with the document is is it's really frustrating because it deliberately doesn't include whole songs you know um it'll jump from the beginning of tell me mama to watch dylan being bundled off stage in paris you know and he's he's not interested in showing you the song and we do know from bits that have surfaced through scorsese's work and all through also through the the institute and stuff that's come out online there is hours and hours of this footage still sitting in the can waiting for somebody to do something with it. And I'm not sure they ever will. I hope they do. So 
Eat the Document is deliberately anti-establishment, anti-form, anti-convention, and it's very frustrating to watch. But that, this is Dylan's point. You know, as, as much as he was reinventing music, he wanted to reinvent film. And I'm not sure that's entirely successful, but it's an interesting experiment nonetheless. Yeah, I, I've seen, you can find some variation of it on YouTube. Yeah, on YouTube. So I have, I have seen, yeah, I've seen it. And it is frustrating. And I got the sense that he was influenced by William S. Burroughs' cut-up technique. I agree. Because didn't wasn't there an original cut that was much more linear from Pennebaker? Yeah, and Dylan saw it and said, "That's eh, too much. Like, don't look back. I'm gonna, I'm mm. gonna edit it." And I and I think what it either, it either happened that way around, or Pennebaker realized Dylan was gonna get his way, and then he cut his own version. But okay, and he called. Uh, Gr- so one or the other. Grill Marcus has has I think seen it or or heard of it, and um, it, Pennebaker called it something is happening. It's never seen the light of day. It's made presumably redundant by the the wealth of 66 footage in no direction home okay but there's still more you know there's still a lot more and it's frustrating because there is there is i mean when no direction home came out its big scoop was you know what there's film of the judas moment no one knew that beforehand and that on its own was was very exciting. Although that I, I have to yeah. say that was not filmed by Pennebaker because Pennebaker I think had to leave the tour and go at, and attend the Cannes Film Festival. And I think uh, Howard Alk, who was Dylan's editor, shot that footage. But yeah, it's I mean, I know in this age of the internet we all think we want the complete everything and we want the unreleased everything, and and I'm not sure that's always justified. But I know there are hundreds of hours of 1966 footage. And I think, wow, it, I do think it's the most exciting rock and roll tour. I mean, maybe put mm. it up there with the Stones in 1972. It set the template for that kind of behavior. I mean, as much as the Stones are throwing TVs out of hotel bedroom windows, and that's a cliche, <laughs> Bob Dylan is wearing sunglasses indoors and smoking all the time. That's a cliche. But yeah. before Don't Look Back, you find me someone who did that, you know. And you can see Robbie Robertson is so under the, the thumb of Dylan. That in um, in it, the document, he's just he's wearing shades all the time. He's being, you know, taciturn and monosyllabic. And the other members of the Hawks referred to him as the limpet because he he wouldn't leave Dylan's <laughs> side. He just he was st- stuck to him all the time. And there's a very sort of self conscious, I'm being cool uh, sort of rock star demeanor that, that he has. Um, but again, this was all new, you know. Well, where did the title "Eat the Document" come from? I've no idea, except to say that I think it's a deliberate. Um, you know, play on the anti-documentary. Um, okay. I mean, he he is literally eating the document. I mean, you you he's got a document of a very exciting time, and instead of documenting it, he's producing, as you say, this Burroughs-esque cut-up version. It's a, it's the similar mind, for example, that put out a book um, of chapters that that bore no chronology whatsoever and went all over the place and called it Chronicles. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? He's just he's just making fun of these things. How do you think the 1966 motorcycle accident that he had influenced any of the editing or or what mindset he might have been in when he's looking at the footage for Eat the Document? And what, let's talk about yeah. that, that crash for a second. It's a good question, because on July the 29th, I'm doing this from the top of my head, I think, he, he, yes, that's he flew right. off his, his motorcycle in, in Woodstock and had this 
this crippling accident. And that is shrouded in mystery. Um, on our podcast, we've spoken to some people who have spoken to people who were there and they have said things like, you know, he, it happened five minutes away from the house and uh, for his recovery, he moved in with his pharmacist. Now, why didn't he go to a hospital? Well, maybe he did. I, d- I don't know. But, but if he moved in with his pharmacist, a theory is that he used that time to get himself off hard drugs. And there's a scene in Eat the Document where he and John Lennon are in the back of Dylan's limo, uh, which was borrowed from the Rolling Stones, and as was their driver, a guy called Tom Keelock. And Lennon said we were both out of our minds on junk. Do you suffer from sore eyes, groovy foreheads, or curly hair? Take Zoom on. Come, come, boy, it's only a film. Come, come, pull yourself together. Have a few dollars, eh? That'll get your head up. Come on, come on, money, money. That was again? You ran right out, huh? And we'll go back home. <laughs> and if you listen to the last concert of the 66 tour, Dylan is clearly on something. I'm not going to speculate what that was, but those, that's what people have said. And people, some people think that he faked the accident in order to get some time off because he had further dates booked. That's the other thing. The 66 tour did not end on May the 27th. They had dates booked in June and through the rest of the year. And I think he realized that he either got off that carousel or died. Wow. And I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that would have happened because he's just going too far too fast. And so then, you know, he, the accident happens, whatever happens, he is with his pharmacist, maybe, or maybe in a hospital bed. It only occurred to me recently when we were talking to Jeff Hanna of Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, um, that, that in the song You Ain't Going Nowhere, he sings uh, the fact that he's, he's stranded somewhere and he's not going anywhere. And tomorrow's the day my bride's going to come. And I suddenly thought, oh, maybe he's lying in a bed waiting for his wife to come and visit him. That, that actually makes sense. I'd never thought those lyrics would be linear or literal, but maybe they are. Clouds are sweet, the rain falling in. Gonna say a movie called Gunga Den. Pack up your money, pull up your tent, McGuinn. You ain't going nowhere. Oh, ride me high. Tomorrow's the day that my brides are gonna come. Oh, we gonna fly. He suddenly had, because he'd cancelled these dates, time with the Hawks. And that's when the whole basement tapes recordings um, right. were recorded. He had time to go, I'm going to do this at my pace. And he did re- release another album at the end of 1967 that took three days and about as many people to record, John Wesley Harding. But other than that, he did what he wanted. And, you know, they played with Tiny Tim and, and they, you know, he thought about editing the document. So he, he, t- he took the clock out of his life. He took the mad rush, the deadlines, the... The speed, and I don't mean that literally, although who knows what he was taking at that point. The right, speed right. of his life. And he, and he put the brakes on and he thought, I'm going to sit upstate in this cool mountain air and make the kind of music that's fun and maybe, maybe edit this film and see what's next. Has he ever commented publicly on Eat the Document? I don't think so. I mean, he probably has. If you dig deep enough, he probably has. Um, I mean, he, nothing happens in the Dylan enterprise without his say-so. And... He would have okayed that footage in No Direction Home. Right. Um, 
he would have okayed the footage that's now on YouTube um, from the Institute. He, when also when the 1966 recordings were released, the concert recordings as a box set in 2016, that came with a little short film that's on YouTube and, and there's some f new footage in there as well. And so none of this happens without his say-so. Um, I don't think that he's ever commented on it, but but like the man said, he don't look back. He, he's not going to be yeah. having a conversation about something that happened in the past. Maybe one day when, God forbid, he will no longer be on this planet and we will have the whole career, the whole arc, the whole um, slew of unreleased footage, then people might start saying, do you know what? I don't know, like they did with Aretha Franklin, for example. She died and then they were able to release that film, Amazing Grace, yes. which had been tangled up in copyright while she was alive so maybe we'll get a 66 documentary i do think the tour itself warrants a documentary that is dedicated to it uniquely i do think it's that interesting um i really really do it is it is the quintessential rock tour and it's it says something that everything they do on that tour and in that film has never really been repeated by anybody you know, I mean, Oasis made a career out of trying to sound like the Beatles did in 1966. I'm not sure everyone's <laughs> right. tr everyone ever tried it with Dylan. <laughs> Have they? It's just too, it's too difficult. And he just keeps on trucking. You're going to go see him tonight. I am going to go see him tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous. And, uh, <laughs> I can't believe. And, you know, that's, I mean, 1966 is before I was born. You Me know, too. I'm 50. You know, B Bob Dylan is still touring. It's astonishing that he didn't die in the back of a car or in his bath or on that motorcycle. But 1966 is as close as he got. Absolutely. Wow. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Lucas, and for sharing this information about the documentary and about Dylan. Where can folks find out more about you and your podcast? Is it Rolling Bob Talking Dylan? Thank you. Um, as you said at the beginning, is it Rolling Bob Talking Dylan is, a, is another um, proud member of the Pantheon podcast family uh we've been going now for about four and a half years we're about to release our 72nd episode with ah, congratulations thank you jeff hannah <laughs> <laughs> of nitty gritty dirt band uh we do one a month we're on apple we're on all the platforms um there is another one beginning with s that i'm not going to publicize because they because uh, <laughs> i listened to neil young about that one but yeah uh, we're on we're on Simplecast, um you know and we're on apple and we're all all the major platforms and what we do is every month we talk to somebody we think is interesting and it's usually about bob dylan and it's great if the conversation goes somewhere else excellent check out is it rolling bob talking dylan podcast and keep up with dana spiota at her website danaspiota.com where you can purchase a copy of her national book award nominated rock novel eat the document and all of her novels Can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. I encourage it. They say everything can be replaced. Yet every distance is not Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. Rock is lit.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 